1: everybody and welcome to another episode of Rounders, a history of baseball in America. I am your host Jeff Lambert. Welcome to season three. We're kicking off a new season of the show. It feels like just yesterday we started. I know I've dropped out for a little while. I want to thank all of my listeners who are turning into this new episode. Things have been a little bit, you know, uh, crazy. Uh, We ended up purchasing a house. Uh, moving into it is always an adventure, getting settled into a new community, but we're excited. I finally got the studio up and running for the most part, and we're kicking off this season with a fascinating interview with author Alan Abel. Alan is a lifelong journalist. He started as a sports columnist in Albany, New York. Uh, He's worked in Toronto, he's worked out of the Beijing Bureau, he's worked for TV network news, documentaries, he's written magazine features, and he recently wrote this book called The Short Life of Huey McLoon: A True Story of Baseball, Magic, and Murder. And folks, let me tell you, this is a story I could not put down. If you enjoy learning about the superstitious history of baseball and seeing how people's lives can be affected by such things, Huey McLoon's life is the perfect case study for those two things coming together. So, I sat down with Alan and we discussed his book. We talked about his inspiration for writing it. We talk about Huey's life and delve into some of the details. And I'm excited to share this with you. And I would encourage you to pick up a copy once you finish the interview. But you're going to hear some things here that I think will really give you some more context. One last thing before we get going, I would encourage you we have an email newsletter that runs weekly. And I would encourage you to become a subscriber, it's free to start. We have uh, some excellent curated work that you can check out. I write articles. I show you some of the things that I've been checking out mm-hmm. that would be of interest to any baseball fan. We run polls. And if you decide that you like the newsletter and you'd like to become a premium member, we have an option where you can sign up and receive uh, a special email newsletter every week with some added extras. You're going to get a bonus episode with everyone that comes out. For instance, I sat down with Alan after we go through this main interview and we discussed his career in journalism. Uh, This is a gentleman that got to cover both the Ali Frazier fight and the Trump administration as a White House reporter. Uh, A lot of interesting stories from watching baseball games in other countries, and it really is just as interesting to connect with him on that level. So if you'd like to hear that extra information, please go ahead and sign up and become a premium subscriber to the show. It's always appreciated whether you can or can't. Just the fact that you're tuning in means a lot to me. So let's get to my interview with Alan Abel in his book, The Short Life of Huey McLuhan. Alan Abel, thank you for so much for coming on the show. How are you today?
0: Outstanding.
1: Now, you're coming to us from uh, the possible 51st state in the Union and uh, the current home of the Nationals, correct?
0: Current home of the former World Series champion Nationals. That's right. We need to give
1: credence where it's due. Absolutely.
0: And, the, and then they defeated by cheaters as they went for a repeat match. Nationals.
1: Yes, yes. And uh, we're still waiting for some prosecution to happen on that front, if ever. We'll see if the MLB decides to do something about that. But, yeah, welcome. I'm glad we could connect here directly. Um, Alan, I wanted to go over a little bit. So you say you're in D.C. now. Are you born and raised in the uh, in the central part of the United States? Where do you hail from originally?
0: Oh, I come from the central part of Brooklyn. Brooklyn. OK. If you ever Very... see a map of Brooklyn, we'd be in the second O. OK, gotcha.
1: Now, Overall, you know, since Brooklyn has a very storied history, especially when it comes to baseball, I always like to start off our our conversations with our guests to talk about the roots of your relationship with baseball. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your childhood growing up in Brooklyn and how you developed uh, an interest, a love for baseball or lack thereof?
0: Well, My father came from a family with four brothers, had a couple of uncles, and their world from their childhoods in the 1920s was baseball. I'm told that my grandfather, on my father's side, when he came from the Russian Empire in 1906, as the cliche goes, one of his main methods of trying to become an American was through baseball. So it was deep in the blood. I know my earliest memories are of being quizzed uh, to name the teams in the Pacific Coast League and the International League, to know the San Francisco Seals and the Hollywood Stars and the Los Angeles Angels of those days. So baseball was always there, Uh, three teams in New York, and my father's candy store, or what in New York is called the candy store, lunch net, soda fountain, ice cream, newspapers. The radio had certainly been on every afternoon with Red Barber, Mel Allen, Les Hodges, the Giants, the Dodgers, the Yankees, even before my memories would have been formed. So it it was always there.
1: Now, where do you find yourself currently in terms of your relationship with baseball? You've you've written a book about a very interesting character in baseball's history, certainly one that we should definitely pay more attention to and one I'm very excited about discussing with you today. Uh, where do you stand in terms of a favorite team now?
0: A favorite team? Well, I grew up idolizing three athletes. Uh, even idolizing is too strong. Muhammad Ali, Bobby Hull, Willie Mays. Uh, in my sports writing days, got to meet them all many, many times, spent a lot of time with, with each of them. And Hull today would not be anyone's exemplar of, of the way a man should behave himself around women. Uh, Ali was everything you could imagine he would be and more uh, bona fide, extraordinary human being in, in, in so many dimensions. And Mays never really had anything to say. Not then, not since then, not now. It doesn't have much to say. And I know that the first time I ever was in the Mets clubhouse when Mays had been traded from the Giants to the Mets to close out his career, that all he wanted to talk about was dental work he had done. So Feet of Clay entered in there. But very early when I was working for a newspaper in Albany, New York, was at Shea Stadium, they had Willie Mays night, when it was clear he wasn't going to be around the next season. I think this is 1973. Mm -hmm. And they brought Mays out. And as always, he was not, he wasn't a Cicero or a Mark Antony. And his speech, his, his punchline was, Willie, say goodbye to America. And when he said that, my instinct in the press box at Shea was to stand up and cheer. And it was as if I yanked myself by my own collar and sit down, shut up, take notes, You do this for a living now. And since then, I have never rooted for anything but the story I was working on and people I knew. Um, You know, the cliche, Jerry Holtzman of of the Chicago Sun Times famous book, No Cheering in the Press Box. Mm -hmm. I took that very much to heart. And most of us took that very much to heart. And we may have rooted inside, we may have rooted clandestinely. If you had a column that was going in print that night about a pitcher for the White Sox, you hope that pitcher had a good game. Uh, but in terms of fandom, that ended that night, and it's, it's never appeared for a second. Uh, I could not imagine returning to fandom. I've been there when my daughter, from age eight on, would root for the Nationals, or root for the Orioles if, if we were at Camden Yards, or wherever we happen to be. Once you define yourself as someone who is removed from partisanship, it's difficult to climb back on that wagon and hard to want to climb back. on. Uh, you become a reserve, a detached observer. And that detachment becomes part of what you do. And I've been a reporter for 50 years. So I'm not eager to put on a, a hoodie and a team cap and cheer.
1: Alan, I, I have to say, I respect that mindset. You know, you think about, The absence of that in the news world today and sports and news at large, it feels like we've become more of an engine that relies on opinion and attention grabbing thought as opposed to, like you said, kind of the non-biased reporting the story, reporting the news to make sure that people get the facts and get the the unfiltered version of what you see and what you hear.
0: I I just spent twice as long in the White House briefing room as I did in the press boxes of major league stadiums and attempted to be as much of a detached observer there while swimming in a sea of partisans uh, from both sides. And the fact that I failed is why you've never heard of what I wrote.
1: Sure. Sure. I it's, it's the, there's less
0: place for that now. Uh, there's There's less market for that. And if that's the antique way of doing things, well then, Better that I'm at the end or near the end than nearer the beginning.
1: Sure. And maybe we have to find a way back to that as a society instead of just focusing on the clip that gets the most attention and getting back to the, let's just hear about something and decide for ourselves. But that's a long road back, especially from where we are
0: now. I remember covering a playoff game on Long Island back when the New York Islanders won the four Stanley Cups in a row in the early 80s. And the auxiliary press box was right in the upper stands. And the guy just across the aisle from me was fully decked out in the wristbands and the aluminum foil Stanley Cup on his head and the headband and the team sweater and Brian Trotsky or Bob Nystrom or somebody scored a goal. And he shook me he said, isn't it great? Isn't it terrific? I said, just another night at the office for me, pal. <laughs> and I, to me, at least, you had to make it just the night at the office. Um, sure. Shut up, sit down, take notes.
1: And I see you've really taken that same approach, I think, in writing the book that we're discussing on the episode today, the short life of Huey McLoon. Overall, you you took a very unbiased approach to discussing the life of this individual. You really delved into the underlying uh, events that were occurring at large in you in the United States as well as in Philadelphia. And I, I appreciate the approach to that. As we jump into discussing your book, overall, what drove you to write a book about this character, Huey McLoon?
0: Well, I had heard peripherally from other old-time baseball fans that there was this age in which most teams had a disabled child, uh, an African-American boy, as a good luck charm, as a human totem, as a mascot. And then someone sent me a package of clippings, and one of the headlines was, Hunchback Mascot Murdered by Sawed-Off Guns.
1: It's quite the headline.
0: And if you want to deconstruct that, Hunchback, okay. Um, Quasimodo was in baseball. I didn't know that. uh Oh, there goes the dog. <laughs> <Routing> <laughs> uh, so Hunchback, that's that's Victor Hugo, right? That's that's Rigoletto. That is uh, that's that's classical idea of the Hunchback mascot. We know what a mascot is. It's the Philly Fanatic. It's the San Diego Chicken. Yep. Right? It's uh it's gritty. That's the mascot. Murdered. Well, there you go. Murdered it sort of signals intent, not a random accident. And then sawed off guns connotes an especial malice, a darkness. Um, murdered by sawed off guns. And I wondered about this for a long time. Who was this guy? And I contacted uh, Norman Macht. And if you know Norman, he wrote a 2000 page, three volume trilogy about Connie Mack. Yep. And about McClune has only about two paragraphs. So there's a mystery on top of a mystery on top of a mystery. Uh, so you've got a cold case murder, you've got a treatment of disabled young people in a way that seems to us so perverse, now, so cruel. Mm-hmm. Someone asked me, who are the advocates for the disabled? What do they have to say? There were no advocates for the disabled in 1902. Right. Um, There were ugly laws that prohibited disabled people from being out on the street in public. So you have this young man and his predecessors and his successors who are now would be called children with a disability, who are called the most envied boys in their cities. And when one of them gets gunned down, Apparently, possibly by accident, while in the company of bootleggers, yep. while at the same time serving as a secret informant for the Philadelphia police, while having been the mascot also for Jack Dempsey and Benny Leonard. And when 15,000 people line up on an August morning to stare at his coffin, and when no one else has written about him, there's probably something there. And then a man I'd worked with for decades in Toronto as an editor of magazines and newspapers I worked for, was starting a publishing house. And he wrote to me and said, what do you got? And I said, uh, how about Huey McClellan?" And if there was less to the, if there had been more to the story that was obviously evident, someone would have done the story before. But there's not a lot known about him. He didn't leave any letters, didn't leave any diaries. His own step family, whom I found in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, knew almost nothing about him. Wow. And then if you dig a bit and dig a bit, you have the story of this. I would say that he fell off a seesaw when he was three. The accident made him disabled. Being disabled made him the mascot. Being the mascot made him famous and being famous got him killed. So do you go back and say, uh, I'll just stick it out as a healthy young lad and never have the chance to be the bad boy for the athletics? Or do you take, do you pick that that lot in life and say, if it goes quick, if it ends rough, at least I was there on the ballroom. So it's, no. it's quite a life. And I, I'm not waiting for the Nobel Prize for Literature, but it's quite a life. He's quite a character. And it, it was 100% true, which matters to me. Absolutely. It's,
1: it's a story you read about it and it feels like it's a fiction. And then, you know, you realize this is all 100% true. That's what I had to keep reminding myself as I read this book. This guy existed, these, these uh, many different threads of his life, you know, like you said, kind of falling together each step. You know, there was a, a quote in the book, and forgive me if I'm, I'm changing it a little bit, I'm paraphrasing, but it said that Huey uh, lived in a heaven of his own creation, and I think that, that, that was one of the
0: headlines. That was one of the stories when he died. But it yeah. wasn't only of his own. It was of Connie Mack's creation. It was of Jack Dempsey's creation. It was of Bubu Hoff, who was the Al Capone of, of Philadelphia. It was his creation. It was the creation of Billy Sunday and the Prohibitionists who strove to make an America without alcohol. Yep. And it was the gangsters who opposed him with great public support. Mm-hmm. But the, the conundrum, the twist, is that McLuhan wasn't the only Huntsback mascot in Michigan baseball. He wasn't the first, and he wasn't the last. And all of them were considered the luckiest boy. Most envied lad in President Taft's dominions was what one of them was called. Yep. But to be the luckiest boy, you had to be the unluckiest boy. His predecessor, Louis Van Zelst, who was with the A's when they won four pennants in three World Series, mm-hmm. had fallen off a wagon when he was eight. And the players adored him. They saw something sacred, something numinous, something truly magical in him. And they believed it. And he went along with it. I'm sure it was no miracle to break your back when you're eight years old and can't afford any treatment. And be in such pain that you can never walk straight again. Or never have a day without agony. But you're down on the field. You're sitting with Connie Mack. When they win the pennant in 1910, when the A's were the World Series, who leads the parade down Broad Street? Connie Mack and the Hunchback. And it, it really happened. And these were real young men. And they were treated as totems, as jujus, as witch doctors. And little Lewis and later Huey would squat in their home plate. And as the players went up to bat, as home run Baker or Blackjack Barry or Stuffy McGinnis went up to bat, would say, better rub my hump for a hit this time, better rub my hump. I didn't make that up. I, I didn't invent that. It was... I think the phrase I used in the book was, it was as real as a beanball. Real It really, really happened. It was not just a one-off. Team after team after team had these, especially hunchback boys, and they believe in them. Why they believe in them is what I try to devote a couple of chapters to, because the first question everyone says is, is this real? Yes. Second, why? Why would anyone think that a disabled child somehow would be lucky? You could see now, think of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, right? Go to Disneyland for an hour and you're the only one in the park. Yep. But to earn that, if it's a privilege or a reward, what has to happen to you? You have to be terminally ill, right, or gravely disabled. Yep. No one would think of the child at Disney World for whom the park was opened an hour early. No one would think of him as lucky. Very, very different. You would think that this is a person cursed by fate not blessed by it baseball took exactly the opposite view, and boxing also because McLoon was a boxing mascot longer than he was a baseball mascot right with champions uh there there was a time there's a fight in the book that's described where each contender in a fight each entered the ring with a hunchback on his shoulder and i don't know if hunchback is a politically correct term now or, or crippled but this is what they were called and this is how they were seen Mm-hmm. and the era lasted about 50 years it wasn't a one-off he wasn't the only one but he was the only one who was murdered with sawed-off guns that i know
1: of. this like we said before this this whole story feels you know a little bit larger than life and you know as someone who's read a lot of baseball books i had no idea that this uh sub culture existed in baseball, we know that sports has always been a superstitious uh, sort of industry, but to the level that you wrote about in the book and even more research that I did after, Connie Mack traveling with a a ventilated suitcase, essentially, with a a young boy from town to town, city to city, just to be able to have that, like you said, that totem, that good luck charm. Just some of those examples about the level of superstition during this time period was really mind-blowing.
0: Well, this doesn't happen with in Philadelphia. It doesn't happen if Mac doesn't go along with it. Louis Van Zelst, Hughie McLoon, at least two. There were other hunchbacks with the A's before that. Yeah, they're not in the clubhouse unless Mac lets them be They're not tending the bats unless Mac and the players say we like this young man. I, I met Mac's last surviving child, Ruth, in Phoenix, and she was about ninety, and she said, "Oh no, 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 no." Uh, they were devout Catholics. No, no, my father never, no, ours is a religion. that That's a silly superstition. Well, whether Connie thought it was silly or not, whether he subscribed to the fact that Lewis and Huey actually were lucky, that's not the point. The point is that he humored the superstition, and right. the players truly believed that when they rubbed the hump and got a hit, it was because there was this magic, magic there. And Mac was a pretty level-headed businessman. Mac Mac was no—he was no Charlie Feeney. This right. wasn't a sideshow. He wasn't trying to just get bums in seats. This was something the players actually believed. Them. But when they went on the road, when they went to Chicago, there was a, th- a three-foot-tall guy who was the Cubs and the White Sox mascot. Yep. Uh, when they went to New York, there was Eddie Bennett who was the first to shake Babe Ruth's hand for twelve years. When the Phillies won the pennant in 1915, they had their own Huntsbrown, right down Lehigh Avenue, around Naughton. This wasn't the first, and he wasn't the last, and then it just ended, ended before the war, as far as I can tell.
1: Yeah, yeah. See- but
0: it was real. Be, this, it would be easier to make this up. It would be much easier to make it up, but that's, I don't do that.
1: You know, and it would be very easy, you know, thinking about this from a PR perspective for the MLB, this could be seen as a, a dark chapter, I guess you can say, by modern standards of how uh, individuals were treated by professionals in the sport. But, and that's the question I want to go to next why do you feel that, well, Huey McLoon, in particular with this book, why does this story deserve to be told as part of this story of baseball in America itself?
0: Because it's true. Uh, there's a quote from Bertrand Russell who was not a sports fan, a great uh, British philosopher and pacifist. And he said, history is important to begin with because it is true. Uh, And having written nonfiction for 50 years, there was a time when heroes of our great industrial cities of modernity, of the world of steel mills and streetcars, believed in the magic of disabled children, not out of charity, I don't think out of charity, but out of a true belief in magic. And the reason I try to come to in the book or that I arrive at is that baseball is so difficult. Succeeding at baseball is so virtually impossible. And if you look at all the rule changes through the first 50, 60 years of the game when baseball started, the pitcher lobbed the ball underhand and the pitcher's only role was to get the ball in play Mm -hmm. so that the fielders and the base runners could do their, their assigned tasks. and then. Not in any particular order. Strikes begin to be called. Foul balls become strikes. There's a pitcher's mound. They throw overhand. They throw spit balls, emery balls, shine balls. They throw curve balls, and they throw it faster and faster and faster. And the bats get smaller, and the ball gets mushy. And everything about it, every innovation makes it harder to hit the ball. Not that it was ever easy. and. To counter that growing, this frustration time after time after time, you looked for an edge. And the, the hunchbacks were not the first, quote, mascots in baseball. There were rabbit's feet and there were four-legged chicken. There were lucky calves. There were blind dogs. There was anything. You know, you've heard superstitions of a, a wagon full of empty barrels, a cross-eyed woman. Uh, passing a hearse, a horse-drawn hearse. Um, You look for an edge. People always look for an edge. They still look for an edge, and they still wear lucky socks, and they don't change their undershirts if they go four for four. But there was this time when there was this confluence of the difficulty of hitting the ball, of the idea that magic can play a role in life, Uh, luck and magic and luck and the jinx and the jonah There are jinxes, and there are anti-jinxes. And then this French comic opera called La Mascotte comes to America in 1880, and suddenly the idea that a mascot can be a human being and that congenitally you can be born lucky is introduced. And the word mascot had never appeared in the English language or even the French language till the early 1880s when this opera bouffe, appeared in Paris about this girl from a turkey farm who Mm -hmm. was a hereditary mascot, which means that anyone who came near her, the luck rubbed off unless he kissed her. And then it would would dissipate. It was a big hit, this stage play, this theatrical performance. And it changed almost instantly the idea that a mascot had to be a rabbit's foot or a four-legged chicken or a blind goat, that it could be a person. And then these Boys born with a full mouth of teeth, uh, boys born with a full beard, all these rumored carnivalesque freaks became desired by baseball players trying to break the jinx. Uh, and the jinx, they believe, and I'm sure you've heard this before, that when a bat came out of the factory, it had a certain number of hits in it. Yep. It was like the DNA of a bat included a certain number of hits. But a jinx could could make those hits fall out. Cross bats in front of the dugout. Um, scattered bats would determine how many runs a team would score. It's like pickup sticks. And there was this superstition. It's so damn hard. I'm going to pick out this bat. Oh no, it crossed another bat. And then if the guy strikes out, it's because the bats were crossed. And that the confluence of that superstition about how to get a hit. Luck, Jonas, Jinxes, and the French opera La Mascotte all comes together. And uh, African American boys were probably the first to be taken along, kidnapped in one case of Clarence Duval, mm-hmm. who was grabbed off the street and, quote, given a bath he didn't want, and taken around the world with uh, Comiskey's All Stars in 1888. Mm-hmm. Uh, that begins it also. It's Lucky Charm, um, Clubhouse Boy Entertainer.
1: Now, just to go a little bit more into the book without giving it completely away alan i want to talk really quick about huey's end of life because he died very young and very tragically like you said could you give us some of the details around what happened to him he's at a high point in his life in a lot of ways you know like you said he's very involved with the professional baseball team in philly he uh, helps out well i shouldn't say help out he's very involved in the boxing subculture of the city we know that he runs his own restaurant slash speakeasy uh, he Very successful for a 20-year-old, let alone someone, like you said, that was born with some physical deformities to overcome a lot of discrimination during this time period. What happened to him? How did his life end?
0: Well, Philadelphia um, was well regarded and and justly regarded as the most corrupt city in America. Uh, Politically and in Prohibition, gangsterism was the price that the citizens, citizens of Philly were willing to pay to get what they wanted to drink. Uh, It it was said that there were more saloons in Philadelphia during Prohibition than there are now. So Philadelphia was booze-soaked and elegantly wasted. Uh, And in the middle of it, there was a magistracy, there was a police department that occasionally would be roused to pretend action to shut down the smallholders nobody cared about, um, something like 13,000. Illegal booze establishments in, in Philadelphia during prohibition. But once in a while, they had, before an election, usually they had to make a show of shutting down the Bellevue Stratford Hotel and the Ritz Carlton, and so that the, the upper crust couldn't just flaunt their defiance of the law while little people were being hauled in for, for having medicinal whiskey under the counter. Mm-hmm. So booze was in the air and it was in the stomachs uh, in Philly. The flaunting of prohibition helped a lot of people have a business. And Huey was so famous and so popular. You have to imagine the Philly fanatic, just to use that city's name. Who wouldn't want to go into a bar and the Philly fanatic is tending bar, right? But in this case, there was no costume. It was, hey, it's Huey mm-hmm. It's Yeah, from the A's. Yeah, you were at the Dempsey. You carried the round card at the sec- at the... First Dempsey-Tunney fight, 1926, 130,000 people screaming in the stands, 25% of them women, the height of the flapper here. And he's the one who carries the round card The show, and and everyone had a comment, the card was bigger than two, he was about four feet two, Uh, the card was bigger than he was, everybody knew him, and he became the celebrity bartender. But at the same time, owing to he had had an uncle who had been a very minor member of the Philadelphia judiciary, called the tipstaff, like a legal aide. So he had had this background around City Hall. He'd been virtually adopted by a man who was known as the Dancing Judge, Edward Carney, who, not to characterize him, always wore a fresh flower in his lapel. wore Elegant, elegant suits of champagne-colored shirts. Never married. No children. I make no suppositions. But he took on, he called McLuhan my lucky stone. So Huey was around City Hall and would take part for the sake of this dancing judge. Also, not only had a speakeasy, not only was violating the Volstead Act, not only was selling illegal booze, but also would take part in raids on other establishments as a quote, as a smeller, as someone who would go in and say, wait a minute, that's not fizzy water, that's champagne. Hmm. Now McClune had been, you're not old enough to remember the Bowery boys. Um, Or think of the penguins in Madagascar. He was a wise-ass street kid, tough boy from South Philly, who always was quoted in the papers speaking in a slang. Like, yeah, I told him you ought to shut up. Whereas his predecessor, Van Zelst was always quoted in Shakespearean English. So Huey was a street character. He was a runner for the newspapers. He would bring the fight results and the race results to the different newspaper offices. You have 10 daily newspapers, too. There's a lot of competition. So he's a celebrity on the sports page. He's known on the streets by everybody. Even if you've never been to a ball game, you know who the Philly fanatic is, right? Yep. Everybody knows him. He's working for the law and for the gangsters. So apparently, he goes to a house of, of pleasure. Same one that's famous for have been Babe Ruth's favorite place. When he'd go to Philly, when the, when the Yankees played the Davis. And supposedly, I wasn't there. You weren't there. Supposedly, he asks for the favors of a certain young woman who works in this establishment. And she makes fun of his disability, laughs at his hump, and he slaps her. Or punches her. Later, goes back to his saloon, tells what happened. Some other young monks say, you're going to let a gay dame or- get, get, a- get away with that? They go to her place. They trash her furniture. She's apparently dating someone from the other faction. Mm-hmm. And events develop over that week. Um, Two sides meet at Huey's saloon. They decide to shoot it out to preserve Huey's reputation. They decide they don't have enough bullets. We'll come back on Thursday or Wednesday night. And there's two guys come into his place two o'clock in the morning. He escorts them out. A gangster on each arm. Car comes around the corner. (laughs) And that's Huey, whether he's collateral damage, whether he is the intended target, whether they want the other two guys. It's dark. He's a small target. And they get him. They get him. And uh, 15,000 people come to see his corpse. Broadway, on the Monday of his funeral, Broadway actors charter a special train to come down from New York to go to the funeral. A plane buzzes over his gravesite and a single white flower is dropped out by a mystery woman. Uh, it's got all the elements of the roaring twenties. Yeah. It's got everything you put in a great novel of the roaring twenties, except it's all true. Yep. Rarely happened. And still a cold Punchback mascot murdered by Soloff Guns.
1: Yep. And still a yeah. cold case, like you mentioned.
0: It's it's pretty cold. I uh, try to contact the Philly Police Department. They don't keep records back that. But as all the uh, death certificate says, homicide: colon, two words, gunshot. Poor little Huey.
1: And to learn more about Huey's life, and and as Alan labeled, just the the complete underside of what was happening in Philadelphia during this time period. It's an interesting read for baseball fans and history buffs alike. The short life of Huey McLoon, a true story of baseball magic and murder. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show.